Welcome to a new conversation with Hani and Peretz, episode three, part one. Our guest is a successful businessman who raised a beautiful family in an Orthodox community to which he is committed to. Yet, he calls out the bigotry he finds within it towards the others and welcomes the inspiration he finds in other religions and non-Jews. Thank you for joining the conversation and enjoy. I grew up in an Orthodox community, grew up in an Orthodox family, yet over time you found yourself to seek spirituality in other places. Could you speak to that or just a background about it? Or yeah, I think that the background is probably helpful, as with every story start at the beginning. And uh, I think it's important to note that I was born in this country of parents who are Holocaust survivors. And it's relevant because they came with a profound history of pain and suffering, uh, and that shaped their persons and their lives, their attitudes and philosophies about who they were and also the regard with which they held other people who were not like them. So as a result, they chose, as most survivors did, to limit the people who were entering into their lives and their homes, uh, and most of the people who they allowed in were people of very similar, if not identical, or profoundly similar backgrounds. I tell people that the likelihood at our Shabbos table of having any Jew who was not a native Yiddish speaker was remote. The likelihood of having anyone who was not Orthodox was the same likelihood as having a Martian at our Shabbos table. So, uh, and that means Orthodox Ashkenazic. We never had a Sephardi guest. We never had anyone who was in any serious way dissimilar to who we were. And that was probably the superficial way of showing the um, length to which my parents would go to make sure that they were people in their homes who they felt comfortable with and could trust. Uh, I understood that and uh, accepted that uh, and in some way embraced it as well because for the first part of my life I was exactly in that same small world uh, and the ex- very limited exposure that we would have to other people uh, taught us to keep a, them at arm's length. And ultimately, uh, the message which was actually articulated to us, spelled out to us, was that you can never trust anyone else who is not like you. Uh, and again, this directly came from their own experiences. <clears throat> uh, however, I grew up in a different world than they did. Uh, and uh, not just different country, but circumstances were in many, many ways um, profoundly different. I did not experience anti-Semitism in this country, not, n- nothing approaching uh, the intensity of that hatred that they grew, grew to experience. And uh, compounding my own circumstances was the fact that I was innately curious about the other, and the other at an early stage of my life really meant anyone who was not exactly like us, which meant there were a lot of other people out there who I was interested to learn more about. I never really got the chance to do that until university or grad school. <clears throat> um, but as I started to encounter the others, it impacted me at first with a great deal of discomfort. 
So I had, for example, a girlfriend whose family was not Orthodox. And I was invited for retreats with their family, extended family. Uh, they were observant conservative Jews. And I can easily uh, reimagine the discomfort that I felt at everything they did. Family prayers, Birkat Mazon, the somewhat awkward or poor pronunciation with which they said Hebrew words, my sense of superiority and knowing what they didn't know and understanding their rather superficial grasp of Judaism, all that came from my contained, smug, elitist background. It took me a while to understand what I was feeling, and uh, along the journey, of course, things changed um, ever more rapidly as I grew older and experienced more. Should I continue to talk, or would yeah. you like to ask any questions? No. Uh, so, the... Um, the unpackaging of that sense of superiority was slow uh, at first, certainly, and I felt myself even able to express to this young girl who I was dating how I felt a sense of um, condescension towards the people in her extended family. They were also friends, you know, who gathered around. Uh, um, and I didn't particularly like what I was saying, but I knew that it was, that's where I was, that's where my heart was. So you were sharing it to, with her just in passing, or it's because you wanted to deal with it? I don't think I knew how to deal with it. I was, I think, expressing it at that point. It's a long time ago, so it's yeah. hard for me to really fully understand that. But, um, you know, it began to accelerate. Uh, again, bear in mind we're talking about observant, conservative Jews. So, you know, on one hand, it's very far away from Yiddish-speaking Orthodox survivors. You know, they are already expressing, experiencing a culture gap between those worlds. But over time, I took bigger and bigger steps, uh, and I developed what I believe is a, hopefully, a lifelong desire to fully, absolutely chase, seek, um, and uh, develop more knowledge of who the others are on this planet. Uh, and jokingly, I say, the weirder, the more exceptional, the more un unusual, uh, hopefully in a sincere fashion, the better for me to understand not who they are, but who I am. So um, here I am approaching my 65th birthday next month, uh, and I don't know that it's complete at this point. I hope it's not. But I certainly say that I've come a long, long, long way of uh, changing my own understanding of who I am uh, as an American, as a Jew, as a man, a person. Uh, and uh, I've had the privilege of uh, seeing uh, spirituality uh, and the depth of um, character among a variety of persons uh, who I was never able to experience considering the extremely limited background that I come from. And I've allowed that to change me in my attitudes towards virtually every important part of my life as a father, as a husband, 
uh, as a Jew, as an observant Jew, uh, and I can specifically point to those moments where I accepted another person's teaching and wisdom, uh, while never rejecting my own, but certainly modifying mine such that when I have serious conversations with other Jews, and certainly other Orthodox Jews, there is a gasp of some of the reactions that I have, that I that I express, you know, when I, when I if if they want to know. Again, this is a personal journey, so I'm not crusading. I'm not on a uh, teaching experience to uh, ask other people to alter their lifestyles. I accept people as they are. Uh, I don't ever ask them why they're doing what they're doing because it's not so interesting to me, you know, unless it is if, if they want. But Orthodox Jews, I I know. Uh, when they want to know about what I've observed and absorbed, I'm happy to share that with him. But them, but I don't really, I don't look for the arguments to come afterwards. I don't look for, you know, the negative reaction. Uh, you know, and that's to be expected if you come, if the orthodox person feels that they are superior, even if they don't say so, uh, and if they're the perfection of mankind and humanity, and they're the, the chosen, you know, the, the of, of the creator, uh, that anything else is something much diminished from that. Uh, so it's a bit challenging, so I tend to avoid that, but on intimate conversations, I'm happy to engage it. I don't think this is going to be an intimate conversation because we're going, going to share it with the public, but I'm, I'm, I'm quite comfortable talking about that. So there are two things you, you, you noted. One is the limited environment within which you grew up in, or, the, or for that matter, the limited isolated environment of orthodoxy, uh, which you in some way still live in, and the constant, or the early and the constant seek for the other, and something within the other that uh, gives you something that you see, seem not to have um, otherwise. Could you first speak to the, to the limiting? What is what is lacking within you know what was lacking within your life or within orthodoxy, you know it's Jewish it's it's rich it's deep it's uh... of course, of course and there's a lot of force beauty and and I call it ancient wisdoms, ancient wisdoms are contained in many civilizations along with ancient follies, ancient follies, unless we are of the mindset to accept everything is pure all good, all bad, all black, all white, most of us will be able to distinguish between the ancient wisdoms and ancient follies. So, for example, yeah, I grew up the beauty of Shabbos, and the sanctity of holidays and celebrations, and of course, and I, and I live in a world, I, I'm, a, I'm identified and practicing Orthodox Jew. Um, but definitely I became aware of the follies. So when my grandfather walked me by the hand in our summer vacations in Farakway, as I was a young child of five or six, perhaps seven years old, and we crossed in front of a church, he asked me to spit on the ground in front of a church. He was not unique. It was a well-known Orthodox practice to do that, to spit on the ground in front of a house of worship of non-Jewish people. And so I did. I was a child. Um, fast forward, and now I understand the holiness that comes through Christianity 
and the teachings of Jesus that can be explained in beauty and holiness and sanctity and divine and the searching for the divine. So the idea that I was a child that was so instructed horrifies me and amuses me and embarrasses me. What was, what was happening at that time was the fact that my grandfather felt it was incumbent upon him to teach me his wisdom. I accept that as folly. He was not to blame. It is inculcated into our theology, into our theology. We know, we are taught through our theology, the time-honored tradition that the Jewish soul, our neshama, is superior to the soul of the non-Jew. I speak to you as a Chabad Lubavitch Jew. I don't have to tell you it was the Tanya who mm -hmm. spoke about this. Can I ask you to confirm that? Yeah, sure, in the Tanya, at the end of the first chapter. Okay. And it was Rabbi Cook who loved all Jews and whose expressions sounded like a flower child in pre-Palestine period who also spoke in many, many of Litvish and the Hasidish world. And the, you can name or the sources that go back to the Gemara that speaks about the superiority of the Jewish soul and the inability of any non-Jew to achieve that level. Even a, a Jewish convert, though maybe a practicing Orthodox Jew, cannot become a prophet because he lacks that DNA, that divine spark that was implanted. So I say, so, you know, how shall I calculate that? How do I want to deal with that issue? And the answer is, I dismiss it as folly. Arrogant, superiority, folly. And so I say, one day I will come to my father, the creator, and he's going to ask me for an accounting of that issue. Why didn't I accept the rabbinic notion of racial superiority? Why didn't I want to embrace the notion of discrimination through antagonistic insults to non-Jews. And I say, Tate, that's who you made me. Give me the reward, give me the punishment. I made that calculation. I don't tell my children that you should this, that, that. Everyone should, you know, everyone can find their own course of action. But I refuse to accept that as part of my theology. It is not just limiting to the fact that a Shabbos guest is going to be speaking Yiddish at our table. It is that I have to believe that to invite a non-Jew of any kind is to invite a Shegetz. A Shegetz. A Shegetz is a vermin. I have to understand that the terminology that we use, we are insulting them in a fashion which we would never accept their insults back to us. I mean, perhaps they call us dirty Jews, we don't accept that. We don't accept black, you know, a black reference to a Jew as a kike. But we, I have heard in my house a man from Lubavitch tell me that the term Schwarze is not an insult because he is so indoctrinated to believe they have no problem with that. That's the kind of, I believe, um, horrible, horrible uh, racism that was inculcated through our theology by rabbinic sources, which I then say, okay, Gesundheit, that's theirs. I will re reject it. It will not be mine. And I will never raise my children with that teaching. So the Torah tells you 
you teach your your children what your father taught you. Now, what? Where? Where does that leave me? Because I reject it. I reject it. It will not be who I am, and I'll t I will suffer the consequences or the pleasure or whatever. I'm making that decision. I reject that racism. That's what I reject. What about the other side of the argument? Can I find among these other people a greater enhanced spirituality? Well, of course the rabbis will tell you that's ridiculous. Yes, those rabbis will, you could point to rabbinic sources and say they can achieve such and such, but we know the preponderance of rabbinic sources will tell you that's, that's, that's silly. They have no such capacity. Most, most rabbinic sources, embarrassingly, will tell you they're akin to the animal world. And now I say to myself, what about me? Where do I, where do I come into this conversation if I'm searching for a closeness to my Father in Heaven? Is the path only through Limude Kodesh? Is the path only through throwing a talus, connectariac mitzvot on my body? Is the path through Shomer mitzvot and Masim Tovim Ach Barak solely and only? Is that, is that who I am? Because that's what I was taught. That's what I was taught. And I thought about it, and I searched, and I encountered people, and I listened to what they were saying and teaching. And I said, no, no. No, I don't think that's the answer for me. I think for me, I can find spirituality elsewhere. And I began that quest. And I was fortunate through my business career to intersect with the non-Jewish world. Not that a non-Jew comes to my house to repair my electrical outlet, but that I can understand through an encounter of depth and long conversation and understanding and searching the texts and understanding where the man or woman is coming from, that that person contains Tzalemelokim, no less than what I've encountered with long-bearded rabbis in Brooklyn. I mean, I don't tell them that they're not, but they can't tell me that these other people don't have it. And I find myself, I have found myself repeatedly in awe, shock, and embarrassment to see the level to which our shkotzim have towered over anything I've seen in Judaism. Or at least equaled, shall we be kind. Equaled is enough. I'm utterly amazed at our willingness to dismiss them and the racism that that speaks to. I found it in Christianity. I found it in Islam. I have accepted from both ideas and concepts which work for me. Again, personal. I don't go ahead and preach. I don't tell my children this is what you should do. I, I would say occasionally it's come up so I can tell them how I react to things from teachings from Jesus or from what I've seen in Islam. Um, and they seem to understand that. It doesn't mean that I don't daven three times a day, that I don't wear tzitzis, they don't. But I want to say that in, in Pirkei Avos, in Ethics of the Fathers, when it says... Who is the wise person who can learn from everyone, from all people? Uh, I think if it weren't today, it probably would say, You can learn from any Jew who's like, like you. You certainly, if you're Orthodox, you're not going to learn from a conservative Jew. You're not going to learn from a Reformed Jew. 
you're not going to learn from a Reconstructionist Jew or from an atheistic Jew or from a humanistic Jew. You're not going to learn from a non-Jew. You have to learn to a rabbi. He will teach you, a rabbi like you can teach you how to become like him. Okay. Fair. It works for many people. It doesn't work for me. And I don't want it in my life. I dismiss it completely with a, my own sense of humility and saying, I am making my decision for me. Leave me alone. I will, I will suffer the consequences. Uh, this is what works for me. And so I say, I want the wisdom that comes from all people, like Birk Elbos, the original, said. And I found it. And I'm hoping that it continues to grow on me, give me the opportunity to improve who I am as a husband, father, Jew, American, and so on. Well, I want to, um, I want to, I want to speak to what you're saying. Um, in in many ways, uh, how you grew up is uh, akin to is akin to how I grew up, uh, growing up uh, in an isolated uh, Orthodox, in this case, a, a, a Chabad community in Crown Heights. Uh, we are uh, we were sort of a minority within a larger Black community. And um, there was this sentiment of they're the other, and um, and you know the Schwarze, um, and there was this sense of of derogatory and looking down on. Um, but I would say also that I've grown out of I've grown out of that, and. My capacity to grow out of that, I actually draw uh, from Judaism itself. Uh, for one, by being cognizant of of what it also says in Pirkei um, you know, in another parak where it says, "Chaviv Adam Shniver B'Tzelem," man is uh, loved by God for being created in God's image. Take it, take that literally. When you learn in Bereshis, Nas Adam Betzalmenu Kedmuseinu, speaking about all mankind. And what I've learned over time, and especially when I left Brooklyn, left Crown Heights, moved out on Shlichut uh, to to Waltham to Brandeis, and they're constantly encountering people who are different than me, uh, living amongst them. I've learned that. Some of the prejudice, the prejudices that I had growing up, that I learned, that I that I encountered growing up, or that I grew up within, uh, were precisely that were prejudices, uh, were you know result of circumstances, but small mindedness, and and not reflected by people who I considered to be of spiritual orientation, um, and. This was something that, in a certain sense, I also had to take remove from myself, um, and I've found that in, you know, by both understanding that there is the theory in Judaism, and then there is the practice and its application, and not always uh, do they are they applied in the proper context. So let's take, for example, um, you know what it says in the Tanya at the end of the first chapter. Um, the starting point is that every person is built, is created B'Tselem Elohim. 
but then there is something unique within the Jewish soul that um, that ma that sets it apart. And there it mentions it in one, two sentences, but later on in, in a lot of texts, later in Hasidic texts, it speaks about it in greater lengths, uh, to a much greater length. And yes, it does give, it does narrow superiority to the Nefesh Elokit, the Jewish soul, uh, but not, but with not by degrading everybody else's, but one that you know, just gives, says that the Jewish soul has a certain capacity, um, that if particularly actualized, can do extraordinary things. Um, and it applies both to, uh, that, to a born Jew and a convert Jew. Uh, that point I didn't, that you said that, that this discrimination against a convert, I know, as far as that concept is concerned, is not, is not accurate. Maybe there are other rulings that prohibit converts from doing certain, uh, operating in certain functions, like to be a king or things like that. Prophet is what I said. Right, right, but, uh, but, that, but as far as the, you know, the, two, the different type of soul, as we call it, um, that it, it, it's equal. It's the same. But the point I want to get to is that I want to distinguish between the theory and the practice. And theoretically, uh, or theologically, uh, the Jew has that unique soul, that unique, and I call that considered a unique capacity, but what matters to a great degree is its application. In other words, you could have somebody who has this capacity but doesn't actualize it, and somebody has a different, lesser type of capacity, or has a, what I'd call a, a normal spiritual capacity, and actualizes that. And when you put them side by side, the person who actualizes a greater sense of spiritual spirituality uh, with, let's call it the lesser capacity, versus the person who has the greater capacity but achieves lesser spirituality, well, one of them has greater spirituality, which you could draw from, or which you can draw from, from the one who has, uh, who's actualized it less. So it's measured to, some, to a great degree by its actualization. Well, can I comment on that? Sure. Is that your um, desire, is it your attempt to explain the practical side rather than the theoretical side? And how they sort of come together. Okay, so I'm not here, I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable speaking about my life than your life because it is, I've experienced my life much more than I have yours. And I certainly don't want, in the context of our friendship, to sound like I'm pointing fingers or anything like that. Um, but let me let me comment, try to comment specifically to that point, which you say is the quote-unquote practical application of, of the concept. Um, I am a supporter of Chabad Lubavitch. I think what they do around the world is extraordinary. Uh, and uh, I've many times said... All Jews should pay $1 a year tax to Chabad Lubavitch just for showing up because of what they do, because we should support that effort. Uh, it doesn't mean that I don't see shortcomings. So when you speak in the terms that you do about if a person has greater capacity, spirituality versus lesser, it would suggest to me that openness of mind that says... You walk into my house or to my universe, and I see you as a person of exceptional spirituality and uh, ability to 
provide all the sparks that, that are connected with that, I should not only embrace you, but celebrate that on whatever possible way I can, because your special, unique function is exactly not what the rebel wanted, but what God wants. Would that be a fair statement? And yes. I, I therefore would ask you to please comment on the following observation. Perhaps you'll tell me that I'm wrong. Among what we, what I refer to as the blue bloods of Chabad Lubavitch, those families that go back not six months or six years or six years, but sometimes hundreds of years, Chabad Lubavitch, would, in my opinion, never, ever allow their daughter to marry a Baal Tshuva who just came to Chabad Lubavitch, irrespective of his spirituality, levels of spirituality, irrespective of who he has become as a person, irrespective of his achievements as a human being. They would say, it's a pastnish, betitnish, and I would tell you in my observation, so please feel free to correct me, that family that goes back hundreds of years in Chabad Lubavitch would sooner cut their heads off than allow their son or daughter, God forbid, to marry such a Balchuva even though he may be wearing the properly dented black hat and the exact rubber clothing that everyone else wears. Would you correct me, or would you say that I'm correct, or, or, or I'm, I'm wrong? Well, I could tell you like this. I'm one of those blue-blooded Chabad families that go back 200 years. Um, I'm a 8th or ninth generation Chabad. And unequivocally, if a, a young gentleman... Um, who had everything you just described uh, was suggested as a match for my daughter, I would with great joy welcome him and accept him. And I don't think I'm an exception. I would unequivocally disagree with you. Now, there may be individuals that may have that sentiment, but by and large, I would say that that's not correct, or I would say, or I'd put it this way, because it's, I can't speak for others, so I, you know, I may be going a little too far, but I'd say, what I will say is this, that um, if such a suggestion was somebody broached such, such a suggestion and asked the Rebbe, should I pursue such a match for my daughter, this type of individual, first of all, the Rebbe would say unequivocally yes. Secondly, Within the theology and within the, the even the, the, the practice, the, the, the value system that is espoused within Chabad, it is to be, such a person is to be embraced and welcomed and welcomed into your family with, with no uncertain terms. If there does exist that sense of prejudice, it comes from just old school prejudice from, you know, from Russia, uh, but it does not reflect in any way uh, the Chabad theology or the Chabad value, set, set of values. So I, I like to be on a learning curve here. <coughs> Excuse me. So let me ask my follow-up. Uh, as you, I know you are <coughs> belonging to one of the old families. Are you aware of any or many of those old families who have sons-in-law or daughters-in-law who are converts? Um, not that familiar. Is no. that, does that strike you as a pattern? 
Um, I mean, there are not that many converts in the Chabad community, but there, there aren't enough to create a pattern, to, to identify a pattern. Okay. My next question. Are you aware among the real blue bloods of Chabad Lubavitch, are you aware of specific families who have allowed the first comer, first to be Baal Tshuva, Baal Tshuva, to marry into the kids? Yes. Num- n- numerous. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, thank you for the answer. I maintain my position about Orthodox Jews generally, and certainly the Haredi community in particular. I don't believe... I mean, it's, we're focusing on Chabad Babich, obvious reasons, because you're from there, but I still believe I'm correct. And I wonder if you would uh, give an opinion whether you think I'm correct outside of Chabad Babich in the Orthodox or Hasidish or Litvish communities, whether you think I'm correct or incorrect. I think you're far more correct in those communities. Uh, for the simple reason, in Chabad... We engage with those people outside of our community on a constant basis, and we have a bunch. We, we, we welcome them into our into our community um, to become part of our community, and okay. we have outposts all over the world. Of course. So we're more naturally inclined to that, and I'll say it's only because of that activity and that and the philosophy that stimulates that activity that we have that. But if we didn't have that element. If Chabad didn't have, was, and it would be just another Hasidic Haredi community, then absolutely I would agree with you in that. Thank you for listening. Part two of this conversation will be posted next week. In the meantime, the conversation continues on our website, anuconvo.com.